Good evening, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out, PBS 12's weekly roundtable that looks at current events in Denver and sometimes much further afield. I'm Patty Calhoun, the editor of Westward, moving over from my usual chair to guest host the show. And we have a lot to unpack today. In the wake of mass shootings across the nation, conversations in Colorado, the site of the Columbine shooting, the Aurora shooting, the King Supers shootings, we're taking aim at ways to prevent future tragedies, including gun buybacks, extra security in schools and supermarkets. But meanwhile, just as it came to Denver after Columbine, the NRA is opening its convention in Texas today. Joining us at our panel, Eric Sonderman, columnist for the Colorado Politics and the Denver Gazette. There is a lot to discuss on this. What grabs you? A lot grabs me. I think. First, by way of preface, I saw last week's show, which was your all-female show, so it is nice to be the token male on the panel today to represent that voice, which has been so underrepresented in our society for so long. Uh, levity aside, obviously we're dealing with very serious stuff here. I think the shooting in Texas and Uvalde was one of those moments that will stick with you of where you were when you heard that news. It was just so catastrophic. Unfortunately, these incidents, these days don't stand by themselves. They One rolls into another. Then we had a scare yesterday here in Denver at Northfield High School. It turned out to be nothing, but at the time you didn't know it was, uh, you didn't know it was nothing. Uh, I don't know that there is a total answer. There are 100 million firearms or more in circulation around this country. You're not gonna get rid of those overnight. Uh, but to my thinking, you could at least make it as hard to operate a firearm as it is to operate a motor vehicle. I know that's a mem meme going around the internet, but it is right. I mean, you have basic licensing requirements, basic insurance requirements, basic checks that are imposed on you to drive a car down the road. I don't know why it is easier than that uh, to do something as lethal as uh, possess a firearm. I don't think there's one easy solution this is not going to go away tomorrow, but it is a sign, Patty, of our broken politics and that everyone just runs to their corners when an incident like this happens. And until we fix our politics, we're going to see more incidents like this. And the notion of coming to any kind of common sense solution or even just moving the goalposts in a little bit for the ardent advocates on both sides, that's going to be elusive. Krista Kafer, Denver Post columnist. Krista, you were here through the Colorado tragedies. Where do you see p politics going now? So I am a, I'm a Columbine High School graduate and uh, been here through the tragedies that have happened. Um, and I obviously deplore, deplore violence of any kind. Um, and I, I hate the fact that we have these evil people that kill people. I was looking at uh, the top five countries for per capita firearm ownership. U.S., Yemen, Switzerland, Finland, and Serbia. And it's interesting that only two of those countries have a lot of gun violence. Um, Yemen, of course, is in the middle of a civil war of sorts, so it's, uh, that's a little more complicated. But I don't think it's the inanimate object. I don't think that it's uh, the gun itself. I think there is something going on with these young, disaffected, friendless men without any morals whatsoever. I mean, to not know that you shouldn't shoot people, that you shouldn't kill people, that you don't ever kill people is very frustrating to me. Um, and it frustrates me that 
that we're not focused on these evil young men, not always young, sometimes they're older men, generally men, men who kill, men who kill children. Um, to, to, to look at other gun owners, uh, peaceful gun owners, uh, NRA members, for example, these murderers are never NRA members, um, but there are peaceful gun owners out there, and to blame them or to blame the object for the crimes of the murderers, it's a little like blaming ca cancer patients who use fentanyl for pain relief and blaming the ODs and the dealing and the dealers and the deaths to for abuse of fentanyl on those cancer patients. And so I think we have to separate lawful gun owners and their right to bear arms from the evil people who think that they can use guns or really any kind of weapon or even a car to kill another human being. Also joining us, Elena Alvarez from Axios. Elena, can you separate these groups? Oh, I think that's a, a really complicated question as, you, as you've touched on. And I think um, the bottom line really here is that school, when it comes to classroom safety, Colorado school safety officials are, are essentially acknowledging that this problem is not going away. Um, so although we can't, you know, guarantee that it's not going to happen again in our schools, which knock on wood, it, it does not, um, what we can do is better prepare for them. And so the State School Safety Resource Center has uh, created a first-of-its-kind document. They released it uh, this past March. It's a 30-plus page um, list of guidelines that that essentially are, are uh, created to help schools better prepare for emergencies. Um, and it include, it's crafted by school security experts, mental health providers, first responders. It's really, really detailed, thorough. And it talks about how you prepare, also how you respond. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, our schools are not, even with this first of its kind document, our schools are not prepared for, um, they do not have the resources to handle emergencies like this. Um, the state has only provided roughly half of the $60 million school officials have requested for security enhancements. And school officials are saying those underfunded upgrades are necessary to protect students and provide the mental health resources to intervene. And those are really good stories in Axios today. So if you're not reading it, do. Also joining us today and recently out of George Washington is Kalina Kulig. And you are currently a community advisory board of the STAR program. Also watch her TED Talk on policing alternatives. What part would you like to discuss? Certainly school safety, you just graduated. Of course. Um, I think we need to move forward with smart policies. Um, policies like Colorado's extreme risk protection order that allow us to take guns from people who shouldn't have them while simultaneously preserving that right for people that want to have them still for other reasons. I also think it's important that we balance the mental health angle on this. We need to address the mental health of our young people, which is suffering significantly. But we need to do it in a way that does not scapegoat mental health issues for the broader gun problem that we have in America. And so balancing those two concerns is key. And a lot of it is going to be not retreating to our ideologies and looking towards what works and what we can implement in the future. Well, sadly, we will be talking about this topic again. I also want to point out, we do have a man here this week, but we have no lawyers at the table. So the conversation should go very quickly on this next one. This week, Governor Jared Polis signed into law the Fentanyl Accountability and Protection Act. Next week, Mayor Michael Hancock and other Colorado officials will hold a two-day summit on fentanyl. With all this attention being paid to fentanyl, are we going to be able to solve this problem? 
Krista? I don't know about solving it, but one thing I appreciate about this bill is that it is a a good example of compromise because you have a, a group of legislators all the way from hey let's uh, you know let's lock up anybody who has fentanyl all the way to no we should decriminalize uh, drugs and 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 really just focus on helping people who want help for addiction. Uh, what this bill does though is really kind of smack in the middle. Um, it does provide penalties for those who knowingly have fentanyl and are dealing fentanyl. Um, and then it also provides mental health and uh, substance abuse help for those who are addicted who want to uh, to get some help. The fact that both sides kind of hate the bill, I think, is also an indication that it's a good compromise. People on the that I've heard from on the far left and far right say the bill goes too far, the bill doesn't go far enough. What I like about the bill, um, whether it work or not, is I'm kind of agnostic, but. What I like about it is it does show that you can come together and do something that does something that is uh, a compromise, um, that kind of hits both sides, and that can be embraced by or loathed by both sides. I, I say kudos to the legislature. Elena, do you think they got this right with this compromise? I think time will certainly tell, um, but it's really clear that the state and the city of Denver are taking this problem more seriously than they ever have. And why that really matters is because fentanyl overdose deaths right now in Colorado are climbing at a faster rate uh, than, than most other states. Um, and as we've talked about plenty at this table, this problem has been very visibly seeping into some of our state and city's most prized in heavily invested places, including Union Station, um, 16th Street, Street Mall. Um, where we go from here, you know, Krista nailed it on the head. Nobody's really pleased with this bill. It strikes, it falls right in the middle. Um, and that, you know, arguably is a, is a good thing. Um, but it, at the end of the day, state leaders' vision for a path forward remains pretty divided on this issue. We have, you know, people who want harsher penalties. We've got Republicans law enforcement falling in that camp. We have Democrat service writers saying criminalizing addiction will never work. Um, but the bottom line is this problem has gotten so bad. It is affecting all Coloradans, especially those struggling with addiction. And right now, I mean, it's, it's only appearing to get worse. So to taking action, I would say it's a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. Kalina, do you think they came up with a good compromise on this one? I do, and I really do agree that struggles with addiction are not to be taken lightly. Another angle that I think is very important here is the education angle, because a lot of the overdoses that we're seeing happening with fentanyl are because um, the user was not taking pure fentanyl, but something that was laced with it, and something that they didn't, in many cases, know that they were getting into. And so publicizing that many drugs, other illegal drugs, can be laced with things that are unexpected is really important so that people know what consequences they're weighing. Another important side of the educational angle is to teach people how to recognize an overdose, to catch it early on in case they have a loved one that may ever be in that situation. And if that happens, we want them to be able to get help, whether they are the loved one or whether they see somebody who might be going towards an overdose or even if they're actively in one, we need those people to be reaching out and getting help. And that starts with teaching people how to make that first step. And finally, Eric, did you ever think we would hear the word fentanyl so often through a legislative session? No, I did not have uh, that on my bingo card five or six years ago, that this would be uh, the dominant issue. I identify with a lot of what's been said by uh, my, my three colleagues here, uh, particularly Kalina's point about it is not 
purely people or even mainly people mainlining fentanyl, if you will, but it's being laced into other things that, uh, that you're purchasing, whether they're uh, legal drugs or illicit drugs, but not necessarily deadly drugs, but you put fentanyl in them and obviously they become uh, very morbid. Uh, very, uh, very lethal, very, very quickly. I, I would just point out about the legislative compromise, and maybe I'll be a tiny bit more harsh on it than um, my fellow panelists. It, it struck me as sort of a compromise. Yes, it was indeed a compromise, but it was a compromise between the hard left and the middle, it struck me. So it was still sort of a left of center uh, kind of compromise. That's the nature of this uh, legislature that we're talking about in Colorado. Myself, I think I probably identify with Governor Polis that any amount of fentanyl is too much and that uh, any amount uh, should be a felony. Obviously, this was a repeal of, I believe it was a 2019 bill or a modification of a 2019 bill that had a much higher threshold of fentanyl. So yes, in that regard, it was a step uh, in the right direction. Uh, there, there's not purely an enforcement angle. There's not purely a therapeutic angle. There are multiple angles. I think the advantage of strict enforcement is it forces people, it leverages people into treatment programs because of the threat of that criminal penalty. And I hope that threat is still sufficient to do so. Well, and we will certainly be hearing more about fentanyl with this summit next week. And we're gonna be hearing more about our next topic too. Good reporting by David Magoya in the Denver Gazette, four former employees of the Colorado Judicial Committee will not be facing charges after an investigation into their alleged misconduct. Prosecutors say they just did not have enough time to make a case before the statute of limitations expired. Elena, this has been, the whole Judicial Committee issue has been hot over the last year. What do you see happening here? I mean, I think this really, this whole debacle really underscores the importance of the bipartisan bill that passed this legislative session, um, that uh, it's aimed at reforming the state's judicial discipline system and bolstering the state's ability to investigate these kinds of um, judicial misconduct claims like this. You know, at the end of the day, they are former employees now, which is a good thing considering the auditors, yes, this investigation fell apart, but the auditors found that there was at least some evidence of fraud. Um, misuse of public funds. And so I, I think um, it's generally just really disappointing that our judicial department, you know, is not upholding the law itself. Um, and Coloradans deserve better. So I'm happy to see that this bill passed. And the accusations go all the way up to the Colorado Supreme Court. Kalina, what do you think about this latest development? Yeah, so I'd like to zoom out a moment because I think the ultimate consequence of this is serious damage to public trust. Um, Coloradans want to know that their government operates transparently, and in this case it really didn't. I absolutely agree with what Elena was saying in terms of the fact that this is really a disgrace and a disappointment. And the fact that it's occurring at such a high level I think does do a lot of damage especially to the public's image of its own government. So going forward, I would like to see more laws that prevent this. Um, and I think that that is the solution. Eric, you flagged this as being a hot topic. What interests you about it? What interests me about it, first of all, I'll start where you started, Patty. Kudos to David Magoya, uh, Denver Gazette, Colorado Politics. Uh, David has been on top of this story uh, from the get-go and uh, has done a great job tracking it. It is just a mess, and it goes back 
further than a year. I mean, this is now several years uh, in its in its origin. Uh, I understand why the prosecutors couldn't file charges here because of deadlines and statute of limitations, but yet something is still wrong that these people who probably should be subject to cr some criminal consequence, criminal penalty, avoid that. There is a slow walking going on, to my thinking, of this whole investigation, and it also smacks me, smacks to me of you know somewhat Chicken's Garden, the, the hen house here, uh, in terms of the courts involvement in an investigation of itself and the judicial department's involvement in that investigation. Uh, hopefully the consultants that are finally hired, the committees that are finally in place will get to the bottom of this, but uh, this reeks of anything but transparency on the part of the judiciary of Colorado uh, and uh, it, it, that's the one branch of government that has sort of been immune from a lot of the partisan polarized wrangles, and now they're in the tank as well, and that doesn't bode well for our state. No, it doesn't. Krista, I think you know all about hen houses. What do you see going on here? <laughs> that is true. I have chickens. I'm not a criminal. <laughs> um, you know, it is, it's a disgrace. I'm glad that we now have this legislation that's been signed into law that will hopefully prevent things like this from happening. And I'm, I, I'm glad, in a, in a sense, their names are tarred, even though they don't have, uh, they weren't able to uh, convict them. But at least anyone who's, you know, when they're out to look for a new job, hopefully this comes up that they have made serious, if not errors in judgment, but massive breaches uh, of ethics. So at some level, I think there will be some justice. But slowly, slowly. given how this is working so far. And speaking of justice, it was two years ago this week that George Floyd was killed. On Wednesday, the city of Denver said it was appealing the verdict that awarded a group of George Floyd protesters $14 million for violations of their constitutional rights. The city is asking that the award be lowered to $1.6 million. Kalino, what do you think about the aftermath of the George Floyd protests and this appeal? Right. I think that this precedent is going to be very important going forward, given that this is really the first case of its kind. It's the first resolved case that we've seen where um, protesters from the summer of 2020 brought the case against a police department. And similar things are happening in other cities, but in this case, Denver is ahead. And so how this ends up being resolved, I think, is going to be really important, not only here, but across the country. Um, I think that the city, rather than putting all of this manpower and resources into the appeal, could take a step back and concentrate on reforming some of the problems that we're seeing in the police department and ask themselves why the case was brought in the first place and what things need to change to prevent it from happening again. And I think that if the city were to go that route, then this can be not only an important precedent, but a good one ultimately for the city of Denver. Eric, you've been covering this and watching it for a while. What a two years it's been. I mean, what a momentous two years it's been, obviously with the overlay of COVID on top of um, the George Floyd incident two months into the, the COVID debacle. I, I guess I want to come at it a little bit from a more hopeful or optimistic note. Um, yes, the spotlight has been shown, as it should have been, on massive abuses and on lingering racial problems in our society. 
and hooray for that spotlight and hooray for the discussions that have ensued. But we should also take stock of the progress that has been made both over the last two years and quite frankly over the last half century or thereabouts. This is not the same country that it was in the Jim Crow era, much less obviously in the era of overt slavery. Um, it is not even the same country it was five or ten years ago. There are always going to be crackpots out there like we saw in Texas. There are always going to be loose screws. There are always going to be hateful people and maybe they represent a slightly higher segment of our population than we sometimes wish was the case. But the vast majority of Americans are big of heart. They do not, I believe, have racial agendas. Um, and I think we ought to take stock of that and celebrate it a little more than it's been celebrated and maybe do what we can, at least at the margins, to make race less central to who we are and less central to how we define each other uh, than, than those who want to make everything about race. Krista, I see you nodding. Would you second that? Yeah, I second that 100%. I also hope the city prevails in its, in its, uh, or its appeal. Um, the fact is, is that 80 officers were injured in those so-called peaceful protests. And I do think you know, the department owes something to those peaceful, truly peaceful protesters who were injured and covering their medical bills and so forth. But a million dollars of damage was done to the city. 80 officers were injured. Um, the, you know, police made some mistakes in how they handled it, but they had to be there and they had to use force. These were, the percentage of those people were peaceful. But there were a lot of people out there willing to hurt others, to hurt property, to break things that they didn't own. And I worry going forward is that the police will be hesitant in combating some of these uh, violent uprisings, these riots. Um, I went to a peaceful pro-life rally and there were these other protesters there that were screaming obscenities into bullhorns and using sirens. I never heard any of the women that got up to talk. Uh, and the police didn't do anything other than keep them from physically attacking us. I, I want to see, uh, I, we got to crack down on these uh, violent protesters and people who cannot seem to get their opinion across without hurting somebody or breaking something. Elena, is it possible to actually have free, pro free speech and protests that don't cause trouble? I'd like to hope so, absolutely, I pray so. Um, I think, you know, the, the city really is going to, just going back to this case, the, the city's really gonna have to meet a high legal standard to get this overturned, just talking to attorneys that we have for this story. Um, and as Kalina said, it's going to have major national implications. It will also affect other protests, or sorry, other lawsuits that are um, already filed and uh, expected to be filed by the end of this week. Um, including one that was filed last week with 12 more new protesters. Um, and so I think the city has a lot on its plate, but um, all of this kind of boils down to protesters not necessarily seeing those damages, their compensation um, for years to come because all of these cases are going to be tied in lingo, uh, legal limbo for a while. And we'll be seeing, talking about them probably next week. But now it's time for our favorite part, Disgrace of the Week. There have been plenty, Eric. There have been plenty. We've covered them, a few of them on the show. Uh, Governor Polis is very fond these days of talking about, quote, unquote, saving people money. It's become his mantra. It's become his drumbeat. You and Patty, uh, Patty, you and I have often exchanged the emails that his office sends out with these endless subject lines about saving people money. There's one specific example here. There was legislation to put more money into pair of money that was not given to pair up per the state's commitment 
during the first year of the pandemic when obviously the state's coffers were weak. Uh, you know, good for the legislature for at least stepping up, but they did not fully fund what they should have funded. And Polis was not an advocate for doing so. He was, an, he was a hindrance, not an advocate. And if you're going to save people money, not over the short term, but over the long term, you've got to do something about Colorado Para, and you've got to make it healthy. And Jared Polis was not an advocate for doing so over the last few months. Okay, Krista, your disgrace. I'm giving it to hipster narcissist Beto O'Rourke for staging a campaign event, basically a campaign uh, a scheme, if you will, by interrupting the governor's message after that horrific shooting. And shame on him. You know, you want to do that, do it on your own time. Elena, your disgrace. <laughs> it's Memorial Day weekend. Weather's warm. I hope we're all trying to get out. But uh, a gallon of gas right now at Denver area pumps is running around $1.13 more than it did a year ago. And that is just painful. And Kalina. Mine kind of takes us back to the gun violence issue and the unfortunate events very close to home happening at uh, Northfield High School and just all of the fear that was wrapped up in that. Um, it's, it's truly a shame that students and teachers and families all have to have that fear in their lives right now. All right, let's turn it. Eric, something nice. Well, uh, Elena touched on it, but it's Memorial Day weekend, so obviously say something nice about all those who've served our country and particularly those who've given the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, but uh, to segue from there, hooray for the Republican voters of Georgia this week uh, who stood up to President Trump, uh, stood up to all the stolen election claims, stood up to his vengeance tour of trying to dislodge the governor, uh, the Secretary of State, and the Attorney General. All were renominated by very, very hefty margins. So good for the voters of Georgia. Krista? I'm giving it to state legislator Don Corum for uh, going up against Lauren Boebert in the first debate that they've had. And I understand he did very, very well. And so kudos to him. I hope that uh, I hope he wins the race. <laughs> Elena. The Colorado Rockies just revealed the jerseys that they're going to wear uh, next week against the Braves. And even though they're getting a lot of hate because they just look like our Colorado license plates, I think they look really great. They're green. They're the color of money. Kalina. <laughs> well, I'm going to take the risk of predicting the weather. I know that we've had some surprises um, in the past few days, but I think it's turning around, and I'm excited to get outside, really see everything that Colorado has to offer. Well, that's great. And I wanted to say something nice very quickly about two Denverites who passed away, Ellen Rucker, jazz musician, if you knew her, and Jerry Kennedy, the legend, legendary police uh, policeman who got a... Cadillac from Elvis. So Denver's a duller town without Jerry Kennedy around. That is all the time we have. But due to the events of the past week, tonight PBS 12 is doing a special program on, again, sorry, at 9 p.m. Tune in for Independent Lens Bulletproof, a very timely and provocative look at how schools are taking, taking care of feeling safe at this time. If you cannot join us tonight, be sure to watch it on PBS 12 Passport. And that's all the time we have. I'm Patty Calhoun, editor of Westward. Thanks for joining us. Men back, maybe lawyers back next week. You come back too. Thanks. Good night.